I will have so much dexterity when we get past all this because there's so many things you have to do and fumble with and it's not easy. Good morning, everybody. I'm just up here mumbling to myself. Pay no attention. <laughs> just business as usual. Pay no attention. Uh, who all here was living here before they built Wonderworks down the street? Anybody live here before that? Okay. So when that place was being built, I was very confused by it. Like, because, because I didn't know what was going on. But I just was looking at the, you know, the structures that were there and the, and the angles. Everything about it was wrong. It didn't look right to me the whole, the whole time. And, and, and so finally they put up a poster of what it was that they were ready to, to build. And it was an upside down building, right? You guys have all driven by that and seen that. And so it started to make a little bit more sense at that point. But I gotta be honest, I still get kind of unnerved driving by that thing. It doesn't look right to me. The whole thing just doesn't feel like it's stable or safe or, or anything. Obviously it is. And this, I don't want to get sued by Wonderworks. I'm, I'm sure it's a wonderful place. Just go there, spend money, do whatever. I don't care. I, all I mean is that, even for a while after it was built, it took me a while to sit there and look at it and try to figure out what was happening. I say that because that is sort of what Jesus is doing uh, when it comes to how it is that he's presenting the kingdom that God is building uh, here on earth, how God is working through us and, and what he's doing and the, and the values and the priorities. All of it feels upside down in so many ways to what it is that we've known our whole lives, upside down from our expectations. What Jesus has done when he came on the scene and in his ministry is he provided us an ethos. An ethos, remember, are the guiding beliefs and ideals that characterize a community. So the ethos of God's kingdom is, as we've been reading it, as we look at it in Jesus, how he describes it, how he lives, how he acts, it's disrupting. It's, it's, it's like an upside down building and it throws us sometimes, but it's all part of what God's doing and trying to reorient us and bring us back to original intent. Because if we were really to think about it, what we have in place right now as a world system is actually the upside down thing that we've gotten so used to, that we're so familiar to us. Jesus comes wanting to flip it back to its right position and, and that's what we're going to be considering today as we keep on in our study of the Gospel of Luke. If you have a Bible or a way of following along, if you want to go to Luke chapter 6, that's where we'll be reading today. Last week we read the opening of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, as it's been uh, known throughout history. It's not the Sermon on the Mount, it's the Sermon on the Plain. It's distinctly different from the Sermon on the Mount, even though it carries some of the same elements. Now in this sermon, Jesus invited us into this new sort of ethos where he would lead us into this state, he said, of blessing. We'd have a state of blessing, uh, the, the good life, basically, in, in basic language. It was a little unnerving because you know, Jesus seemed to indicate that we would find this state of well-being in ways that were opposite of what we would expect. He lists off all these various states that we could be in and describes them as blessed. And, and it's, it's almost exactly what Jesus does is turn everything upside down. All the stuff that we spend most of our time trying to avoid or eliminate in life is the stuff that Jesus said we would actually discover God's wholeness in the midst of those things. And what we learned was that this good life that we're longing for is more like an elevated state of well-being provided to us by God, something that's not dependent on the circumstances that we're experiencing uh, in the present. 
Now listen, I'll be the first to admit, that was a challenging start to his sermon. It was not easy to hear those things that he had to say. But cheer up, because it's just going to get worse. Uh, as Jesus continues outlining the divine ethos that he intends for his followers, we're going to find that it's a calling to step away completely from this fallen world's normal practices uh, and tactics, primarily when it comes to issues of self-preservation and generosity. And he's called us to embrace this ethos of self-giving love and almost an absurd type of generosity. He's going to provide us with the motivations behind that. Why would we do something like this? It's in, it's, it will be intrinsic to what it is that he shares with us. And so, as I said, this is not going to be easy. It, you know, it, it, I'm sorry. It's not too late to go to North Star or whatever, but, uh, it, but it's, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, but, and that's not to indicate that it would be easier at North Star. I didn't mean that at all. Those guys are my friends. I didn't mean, I was just trying to think of, a, you get what I was saying. It was a joke. Calm down, everybody. Okay, so <laughs> all these voices. <laughs> but anyway, this is the thing. Where else are we going to go? I mean, who else has the words of eternal life? So we've got to listen to what Jesus has to say and see how it is that we can process it and see how it applies into our lives. So if you're there in Luke chapter 6, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 27. Jesus continuing to speak, he says, But to you who are willing to listen, I say, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks, and when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. (laughs) All right, we're done. Let's get out of here. No, Okay, as always, here's the thing. We've got to set this in its proper culture. We've got to set this teaching in its cultural time and place. So much of this, when we read it as 21st century Americans and try to read it through the lens of our culture, becomes really, you know, disconcerting. And I would say that a lot of times, because we'll just look at it on a surface level, this can get misapplied, what he's saying here, and even you know, at worst, be dangerous if we're not careful about putting it in its rightful context. Uh, so, you know, we have to read this with first century Israel occupied by the Roman Empire in view, because it's very important to understanding what it is that Jesus is saying here. That's the original audience. They were Israelites who were living under the oppressive rule of the Roman government, the Roman Empire. And while the truth that Jesus is speaking is going to be applicable to all of us at all times, in all places, its meaning has to be understood before we can rightly apply it. We have to understand what he meant to the original audience so we know how to take that teaching, that meaning, and and apply it to us as 21st century Americans. First of all, we want to just soak in just how shocking Jesus' words would have been to those hearers. Because remember, everybody's waiting for a Messiah who's going to come on the scene and go to war with the Roman Empire, to go to war with the enemies of Israel. That's who they were looking for. They expected a Messiah who was going to storm the capital and execute the priests and Herod, and who would raise an army and drive out the Roman soldiers from their lands. And Jesus gathers everyone around and he says, hey, listen, everybody, let's love our enemies. And everybody's like, yeah, wait, 
love who? Who did you just say? You can just imagine the wind going out of everybody who's kind of getting geared up thinking Messiah is here. It had to be a surprise. But he said, for those who will hear it, we're given an ethos that if we'll live it, we'll actually reveal what God's intent is for this world, what it is that God has in mind. It shows what the world will look like when God's kingdom is fully realized. It shows the, the kind of heart that God has for this for this world and for the people who make up this world. His heart, his desire to rid the world of animosity and enemies. Can you imagine a world like that? Jesus tells those who want to follow him, and hopefully that's that's us, to, to love our enemies. And then he describes several ways in which we can manifest that love. And this is where we get into the specifics that help us to understand more of what it is that he's talking about. We're going to investigate those those examples, but what we're discovering in this section that Jesus is saying here is that God's new world is revealed. If we want to reveal what God's world and God's intent is, it's going to be revealed in our love and our kindness towards our fellow human beings, towards others, regardless of how they treat us. So let's look at these examples. Jesus begins with those who hate and curse or speak ill will towards us. Now, listen, religions all over the world have issues, you know, have commandments about these types of things. Rabbi Hillel, he was a famous rabbi uh, just before Jesus's day. Uh, other spiritual leaders, Confucius uh, famously has instructions about not returning hate for hate or not returning curses for curses. What sets Jesus apart here is that he adds to that. He provides these proactive steps. Don't just take it when somebody is is hatefully calling you names. Don't just take that. No, do good for that person. Actively do good for them. Speak well of the people who are saying terrible things about you. If someone is hurtful towards us, he says, pray for them. Now remember, he's talking He's talking to Israelites, and so he's talking to people who are thinking along national lines. And so this even applies then, governmentally, to, to some of the things that are going on here. Pray for them. Jesus isn't telling us, you know, just to absorb mistreatment and walk away chanting things like sticks and stones, you know, whatever. He adds this unthinkable element of going out of our way to do and say decent things to the people who dole out things towards us that are less than kind. This is how God's love is revealed. Now listen, that's not something that's going to come natural to us, naturally to us. That's not something that we can just say, oh yeah, I feel that, I get that. As a matter of fact, we may be looking at that and saying, "How, Rob, how am I supposed to do this? I don't feel like doing that. Am I supposed to pretend that I'm not hurt? Or that I'm not angry? Do I just fake this? Because I certainly don't feel like loving the mean people in my life. But there's where we come back to the word that he uses here when he says, love your enemies. It's the word in the Greek, agape. And, and, and we've talked about this often here. It's the self-giving, sacrificial love of God. This is God's love that he represents into the world, that he expects. He calls us to be conduits of into this world. And this kind of love is not the product of our emotions. It doesn't come from here. It's a determination of the will despite our emotions. This kind of love actually has no bearing on how we feel at the moment. It's a determination. Listen, I've given this example many times here before. 
it feels very apropos to share it now because we, last week we talked about Ruth and Roger Peterson. Uh, they were very special, important people, part of this community. Ruth was a, a gifted teacher and would share with us quite often. Wonderful people. They passed away just recently. They're in great shape right now. We're, we're on our journey still. But in her teachings, Ruth shared a story from her early life before she had met Roger when she was first married. And the man that she was married to had an affair. And, and he came to Ruth at one point and he said, listen, I'm trying to decide if I'm going to stay with this lady or come back to you. So just give me some time, which, you know, process that one about. But the, Ruth dutifully waited for his answer. She was praying. She was trusting God for restoration in their in their relationship. But in the end, he decided to leave Ruth and, and go off with with the other woman. And so Ruth, of course, was devastated, as anybody would be, in all the various things that you would feel and the emotions that you would have and the, you know, just even the the whole sense of rejection behind that. Uh, But she was also aware of what Jesus had said here and in the Sermon on the Mount about loving our enemies and doing good for those who, who mistreat us in ways like this. And so she determined that she needed to pray for her ex-husband, ex-husband and his new wife. And she see, first started out and she got before the Lord and she said, Father, I pray for my ex-husband and his new wife, but I don't mean it. Uh, and it was good. That was a good answer. You've heard this story, I know, many times. But it was an, an, a, a prayer that was honest with God in her emotions, but she was faithful to Christ in her actions and her words. And she kept praying that. She prayed that for years, over a span of quite a few years. When I'd first told that story, she came to me afterwards. She said, you made that sound way too easy. It wasn't that easy. It took a long time to to get through that. But there came a point in time where she was praying that. And as she really honestly looked at her own heart, she realized she meant it. She did mean goodwill towards both of these who had hurt her so terribly. She could forgive and bless them both. Christ calls us to his path, not to his feelings, but to his path. And and if we'll faithfully walk that path before we know it, it will be our path. It'll be reflecting what we actually feel, what we actually are, because it's so familiar to us, because we've been walking this path for so long, following his footsteps. It's not easy I promise you it's not easy, and, I, and, and forgive me if it makes it sound like it's easy. It's not. But it changes the dynamic of this broken world. It's an important influence and power here in this world when we can live by this. It undermines the normal currents of hatred and retaliation, showing us a better way to be human in this life. Jesus also speaks about turning the other cheek And this, of course, is very familiar to us, but it's one of those things that we have to look at very carefully because this is probably the primary one that's been used in ways that have been harmful to people. And so we want to look at at what it is that he is saying here because it's important to, to really process this. First of all, he says if someone slaps you, and that carries over from the Greek. It's a very distinct word used in the ancient Greek for a slap. Other words... For other types of violence are, were available, but a slap is this, a, a, you know, a slap. It's not a sucker punch, not saying sweep the leg or anything like that. He's not describing a fight here. And I realize I got boxing gloves up there, but that's more for symbolic reasons. He's not describing a fight, like a fist fight. And this passage has been used a lot to promote 
doctrines of non-resistance, and and that has freaked people out who feel responsibilities to protect their family or protect the weak or, or whatever. So we want to be careful about this. We want to read this honestly. Jesus is not saying in this passage, if someone comes in to kill your family, let them kill the dog too, or, or something like that. But in other instances, this passage has been employed to pressure women into staying into abusive relationships, saying, well, you know, you're supposed to turn the other cheek. You know, uh, Jesus said in this. Uh, and, and, and so uh, this passage has been used in ways that ultimately become harmful to someone. In our nation's history, this verse was used to compel our fellow humans who were held as slaves not to resist the cruelty of their masters. This passage was invoked for that. Well, you're supposed to turn the other cheek. None of these applications were what Jesus had in mind when he said these things. He is not ordering us to be human punching bags or passively accept abuse. Jesus is speaking to something specific in the time and the culture that he was in. A slap in the ancient world. Fascinating study if you ever get the chance to, uh, to do that. But it carried a social ramification behind it. This was a matter of honor. You know, it carries over. There are carryovers, carryovers of it into our culture in the old movie tropes where a guy's going to challenge somebody to a duel. And what does he do? He takes his glove and, yeah, slaps him. It's a matter of honor. That's a carryover from the ancient concept of what a slap on the face would mean. In the Talmud, which is the ancient writings of the rabbis which discussed the law, it reads, one who slaps the cheek of a Jew is considered as though he has slapped the cheek of the divine presence. So retaliation was sanctioned because it was in defense of God's honor. So for those listening, for those who are hearing what Jesus said at that moment, these kinds of things are in the background of their understanding of it. And they knew very well who the someone was who would be doing the slapping. It was something that the Roman soldiers would do regularly to make sure that they uh, that they showed their superiority over those who they were ruling, they were representing Rome to. They would slap a commoner very easily. They were they were the same one who who would demand you to carry something for a mile. They were the same ones who would take your outer cloak if they needed the outer cloak, the coat that Jesus is describing. There was like a blanket that would use uh, against the cold. They could commandeer anything they wanted because they'd already taken the land, taken it from them. Uh, that he, Jesus says, don't ask for it back. When Jesus tells them to turn the other cheek, he's not saying, you know, make sure that both sides of the face are equally bruised. We want it to... No, he's saying, don't let that slap define your sense of honor. Don't let that be the thing that defines who you are. When he says to expose the other cheek, he's calling for peaceful subversion. He, he doesn't want us to retaliate in anger or shrink in some sense of false meekness to this thing. He wants to make sure that each attacker can stop and think about how they are mistreating another human being. Our natural response to someone hitting or belittling or exerting power over us in a bullying manner. Our natural response is to fight back, to push back at that. This, though, often results in that endless cycle when we do that, when we push back, that endless cycle of retaliation by each side. And again, this isn't 
talking about violence as much as it is talking about honor and respect. But as it goes, it can result in violence. You don't respect me, I don't respect you. You call me snowflake, I'll call you boomer. Slap, slap, slap. And always escalating till we do see violence like we've seen. This is the world's way. Retaliation is never motivated by love. Jesus provides an ethos, a way of life in which the poor and the powerless, those who've experienced bullying, can act from a position of strength. Because it takes fortitude and self-control to resist the urge to strike back. When we turn the other cheek, we're not fearfully running away from the person who strikes out at our honor. But we face them confidently, without anger, making it clear that we're not afraid of them. Our honor is not dependent on how they treat us. This is an initiative that leaves the wrong that occurs where it belongs in stasis as irrelevant to anything that that has any eternal meaning in this life. We're being taught here that our dignity doesn't depend on how others treat us, just like our state of blessedness does not depend on present circumstances. It's same thematically that Jesus is trying to get across. This is our vaccine against codependency. We don't need somebody to prop us up or tell us we're all right. We know who we are. We know who we belong to. We know where we're going. We know it's all right. The Roman soldier may feel superior to you. The political rival may feel she has the upper hand. Your unfriendly neighbors may feel like they showed you. But Jesus is telling us your honor is intact. It's hidden safely in God's great love for you. Have confidence in that so that you can stand strong and show the dignity and the honor that's represented in the kingdom of heaven. All right, well, we keep moving here. Verse 31. He says, do unto others as you would like them to do to you. That's the golden rule. So many religions have this in it. But then Jesus expounds. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for full return. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great and you'll truly be acting as children of the Most High. Why? For he is kind to those who are unfaithful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. Now, before we dive into this, I got to quote this to you. I'm going to put it up on the screen from one of the ancient, again, rabbinical writings from a hundred or so years prior to Jesus. From Sirach 12, it reads, when you do a good deed, make sure you know who is benefiting from it. Then what you do will not be wasted. You'll be repaid for any kindness you show to a devout person. If he doesn't repay you, the most high will. No good ever comes to a person who gives comfort to the wicked. It is not a righteous act. Give to religious people, but don't help sinners. Do good to humble people, 
But don't give anything to those who are not devout. Don't give them food or they'll use your kindness against you. Every good thing you do for such people will bring you twice as much trouble in return. The Most High himself hates sinners and he'll punish them. Give to good people, but don't help sinners. What do you notice about that? I mean, seriously, though, so this is like within 100, maybe 200 years before Jesus, doesn't it sound like Jesus is actually speaking in contradiction directly to that? I mean, it was certainly in the air at the time. There's no way of knowing, but it reveals the mindset of the people that Jesus was ministering to. And Jesus points out that people who think nothing of God can do things like are described there, like love and do good and lend and all of that. However, they do them following the rule of reciprocity. I'll do this for you, but you'll have to do for me in return. Those who can love and do good uh, in repayment for any love or good that I do for them. What's different about Jesus' ethos isn't even the actions per se, but it's the recipients of those actions and related to that, the motivation for those actions. We're not motivated by receiving the same kind of love or help in return. When Jesus said, why should you get credit for, for doing these things if you're doing it for return? The Greek word for credit is charis, which is grace. And you could almost translate what Jesus is saying here is like, what kind of grace is that? If you do these kinds of, what kind is that? What, how are you revealing anything different from what the world already does in its broken state? See, the issue isn't merely of how much we've done. It's about what kind of grace we're representing in this world. The kind of grace that it, that's at work. Because the grace of God's kingdom is of a different quality than the world's grace or the world's understanding of grace. Jesus isn't trying to modify the rules of this world. He's presenting a new world under God's rule, under God's healing reign. And he makes it crystal, crystal clear here. Think about the kind of grace that God shows us. Think of where we were before him. The way God treats us. We certainly don't deserve his love and his favor. It's not because we're so worthy of being in his family that, man, I just couldn't get along without you, Rob. It's not that. It's simply because he loves us unconditionally. He loves us without envelope, without boundary. He loves us. That's why we're saved. So Jesus says, you must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. Now listen, are we going to do that well <laughs> when we are, when we are the created and he is the creator? I mean, I don't know that a just as statement is achievable, though we are filled with the Holy Spirit and enabled by the Spirit to do things that are well beyond what we're humanly capable of. But it's still the path that he puts us on, right? So we're not putting ourselves under condemnation because we don't do this well. Nobody does this well. But this is the path we walk, right? This is the direction we go. This is the calling on our lives. Compassionate just as my Father in heaven was compassionate on me. Okay, well, uh, we realize from this that God's compassion for humanity is shown when we care for others unconditionally. We were never given a mandate 
to determine a person's worthiness or, uh, you know, worthwhile state of receiving help or care. God calls us to rise above the standards of this broken world, not just match them. And we do that by seeking God's reward in all of this uh, as, you know, not temporal incentives. How is this pleasing to my father? How is this pleasing to the compassionate God who showed compassion on me? We have to move past. And this is a journey, guys. It's, it's, you know, it's a journey why we come back to the word every week, why we keep reading it, why we keep looking at Jesus's example, because we need that, because this isn't an overnight thing that happens in our lives. But we've got to move away from the world's ethic of reciprocity. What's in this for me? What do I get out of this? That's a mentality that's not compatible with, with what it is that Jesus describes as our ethos. Fact is, what Jesus describes here is just no way to get ahead in this world. It just is not. This is not a formula for worldly success. We may lose something along the way. No, it's not a formula for worldly success. It's just the opposite. It's a path to heavenly success and satisfaction that we can get from returning to our original intent as human beings. Ayn Rand, the famous political philosopher, outspoken atheist, wrote, If any civilization is to survive, it is the morality of altruism that men have to reject. Because she saw clearly that Jesus' teachings like this, that's incompatible with personal or even cultural advancement. You can't get ahead if you're not willing to step on someone else's neck. But our calling is to love our fellow human unconditionally. We're not called to determine a person's worth for our service. We're called to love. And in so doing that, we reveal the unimaginable love that God has for all humanity. This is how we show that we're God's children. Because because we're showing off the family resemblance. I, I belong to God's family because, well, this is what his family is like. This is a family trait. We just have a willingness to love more than a willingness to take. Well, let's quickly finish up here, verse 37 uh, through 38. Do not judge others, and you won't be judged. Don't condemn others, or it'll all come back against you. Forgive others, and you'll be forgiven. Give and you'll receive. Your gift gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Again, one of these passages that we've got to really take a look at here because this has been, (laughs) this this passage has taken us into strange territories uh, over the years of the church. But that's where we're going to stop today. Jesus prohibits two things and he commands two things as counterpoints. Both the prohibitions and the commands in the Greek are in the tense that means a continuous repeated action. So he's saying, don't keep on judging and don't continue to condemn because that's the natural process. He's telling us we got to stop that activity because that's where we normally do stuff. And then he says, keep on forgiving and continue to give. Now, again, as I was saying, it could be perplexing because encouragement here to give freely 
comes with the promise of reward, which then sounds like the law of reciprocity. Well, like if I given, you know, we've heard the preachers before, um, you know, even give those kind of lines. You know, this is God's investment plan for you. He's given to my ministry and God will give you all kinds of goodies and toys and blah, blah, blah. Here's the thing. Uh, we have to understand give in the context of what it is that Jesus is prohibiting here. Give is in contrast with condemn. So the idea is that of generously, uh, a, a generously gracious attitude towards someone uh, who, you know, we would have normally been willing to write off or condemn. You see what I'm saying in that? It's kind of like when Jesus says, forgive and your heavenly father will forgive you. It's not so much that this is, you know, it, it, uh, it's not a, a reciprocity thing. It's about being in the divine flow of something. This is how your father in heaven operates. He moves this way. He brings forgiveness. He forgives. If you're wanting to get into that flow, you're going to forgive. You're going to do as he does. It's not so much a, you know, God's not, you know, saying, well, you know, you kind of condemned that person. So I think I'll wait around until you get this right. It's not that he's not, you know, he decides to condemn us if we condemn somebody else. It's not that we're not forgiven if we haven't forgiven somebody else, but he's talking about getting into the flow uh, of like a faucet, you know, a, a, a butterfly valve has to move in a certain direction uh, for everything to flow. If you stop that up, if I say, I'm not going to forgive this person, I've stopped that up, then the whole flow is not working in life. Do you get what I'm saying in that? Does any of that make sense? I feel like I've gotten in the weeds here, and so I'm going to uh, come back to my notes. Uh, so uh, what he's telling us here is that forgiveness of others is how we're going to perpetuate God's highest good on this earth, in this world. Now, again, I want to qualify because when Jesus is forbidding us to judge, he's not saying anything goes. You know, oftentimes people will use, you know, you're not supposed to judge because they don't want somebody to to comment on, you know, some choice that they're making or whatever. Whether or not we should be commenting on that is another matter. But either way, you know, we are called to judge some things. We are called to discern things as to being right or wrong. That's all through the New Testament. We're called to encourage each other towards what's healthy, what's humanizing, what's loving. The judging that he's describing is is restated in the word condemn. It's actually basically conveying the same idea. We're not in a position to condemn or call somebody worthless or hopeless or outside of God's purveyance or care or love. That's the judging that he has in view, something that was rampant in, in the religious history of, of Judaism at the time. So he's addressing this, the human tendencies to stigmatize people who are different from us, labeling people and categorizing them so that we can abstract them in our thinking and it dis- essentially dehumanize our fellow person. I mean, just take a minute and think about all the different, all the different ways in which we'll call each other names. And I know that there's a joking thing that can go on or whatever, but there are a lot of times that I see words used in, in harmful, judgmental and condemning ways. Think about how quick we are to assign people a category, which suddenly makes them abstract. I mean, honestly, you can't turn on social media anymore without seeing that in its, in its full display. And that's the stuff that Jesus is talking about. And you might go, Rob, you know, that's just online stuff, whatever. It, listen, as long as it affects another human being, it is what Jesus is talking about in this.
What, what are we perpetuating into this world? That's not a bad little uh, note to put uh, up by your computer screen or your phone or whatever. What am I perpetuating into this world? Jesus invites us into relationships that are not governed by coercion and power, but by vulnerability that's grounded in divine love, in God's love for us. Because love is the only thing that is going to transform this broken place. In the end, it's only going to be love that changes this. Love, more than personal justice, is this world's hope. Because strength, strength eventually gives way. It's eventually going to fail. Power, we know that, it corrupts. Survival of the fittest, I mean, all that does is leave a body count. Love alone transforms and redeems and creates value and new life. Jesus will show us what love does. Because all of these things that Jesus is describing here to us as the ethos of his kingdom, Jesus is actually going to do. We get to the end of the story of the gospel and we'll see that he does exactly what he's saying here. He gives his cheek to those who strike it. They take his cloak from him. They curse him and he responds with forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. His loving response in that moment continues to change the world to our day. And he's inviting us into this bigger life. Not just that, not just that upside down life we've been living our whole lives, but the right side up life that God intends. This is who you can be. This is an invitation to see reality differently, to get a vision of what the world could have been if Eden, the Eden project had continued, what it will be one day because of God's love and the inbreaking of his kingdom. So let's consider this invitation by Jesus. Let's accept this challenge to a radically different ethos than the world has. Let's surrender to God's purposes and how it is that we relate to our fellow human being, foe or friend. And if we allow God's love to work through our attitudes and our actions, I believe our lives will be a place where heaven and earth meet, where things begin to change where the world around us begins to change because of heaven's presence. Let's embrace Christ's values described here, and let's give this world a glimpse of what it really means to be human, someone created in the image of God. And we can do that through the transforming power of God's love. Right on? All right, very cool. Why don't you stand with us, please? God, we thank you so much for your word. And even though it's difficult for us to to look at these challenges that you lay before us, I pray, Father, that your word will have its way in our hearts, in our lives. And Father, right now, there's not a person in this room that has walked in here and doesn't have some instance, some issue in life where we've been wronged, where we've been mistreated, maybe we've been bullied. Father, as we stand here before you right now, I ask you by your spirit to begin to move among us. 
Father, so much of what we do in following you depends on the healing that you provide for us. And there's so many people in this world who've not known that healing that comes from embracing your love for us. Some who still allow themselves to be defined by the hurt. But you've told us so clearly, Lord, our value, our worth, our honor, our meaning and purpose are not dependent on the circumstances we face or the people in our lives, but, but it's all resting on the love that you have for us. So, Father, I pray for everyone here that you heal wounds, that you, by your Spirit, begin to provide a salve to things that are still open and bleeding and hurting. Father, bring healing You care and you love everyone here so much. Let your love begin that healing process so that each one of us can rise up full and whole human beings looking in the face of anger, looking in the face of hatred and not be affected by it because we're wrapped tightly in your arms of love. Let every person here experience that day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, in each moment, reinforce your love for us in our lives and in our hearts. I pray that for us as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Father, that's what we believe, that your name is powerful enough to change us, to make us your instruments in this world. So do that work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, All right, well, we're going to dismiss here. Uh, We're going to speak this blessing on each other before we leave. When we're done speaking the blessing, those of you who have kids in the Kids Gate class will go go on back. And then he'll uh, dismiss us by, uh, Robert will dismiss us by Rose. I'm going to be out there to to meet with you or talk with you or pray with you. Also, the guys from the men's group are going to be out there to pray for anybody who may need prayer, uh, anointing with oil. Uh, we're going to get back into the, the mode of uh, of that kind of ministry. So they'll be out there in the courtyard as well. Feel free to hang in the courtyard as long as you want to, but we do want to remain safe and please keep your mask on inside here. But let's that's a lot of words just to finish up. So let's say this together. May you see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. May the Lord hold you steady and still. In Jesus Christ, hold firm, take heart. In His love, there is hope for you. Go in peace when you're dismissed, you children of God. Kids Gate.